internet, welcome to film theory. Finally, finally it's happened. After eight agonizingly long years in development hell, hopping from studio to studio, director to director, the Five Nights at Freddy's movie is finally out for you to go see right now. And man, has this been a commercial hit. As of the writing of this script, just one weekend into release, the movie's made over $152 million at the box office, more than seven times its own budget. And that's despite being available to stream on Peacock, where, oh wait, it's also the most viewed movie on Peacock ever. Suck on that, my big fat Greek wedding three. It's also Blumhouse's most successful opening weekend to date, which means that more people are turning out to see Springtrap wielding his knife than Michael Myers. Maybe now Hollywood will finally bother to get the name of this thing right. And his other movie, Friday Nights at Freddy's, comes to theaters and streaming on Peacock October 27th. Five Nights at Freddy's. What did I say? Friday nights. It's been eight or nine years since I first met Scott Cawthorn, who created this. Why do we get Five it wrong? Nights. Or not. Who cares? Forget them. This thing was made for the fans. From Sparky the Dog, to Dream Theory, to... It's just a theory. You bet it is, and today we're getting back to those theorist roots. Today we're theorizing about the actual movie, and... Boy, is there a lot to talk about here. True story, after the movie, I basically locked myself in the room with Lee and Tom, the film and game theory creative directors, and we busted out our trusty whiteboard to figure out exactly what was going on in the movie and where the story was gonna head in the future, because there were just a lot of details left hanging. What was up with the Balloon Boy figurine? How is no one freaked out by the fact that there are bodies in those animatronics? Wasn't this like the most structurally unsound table for it of all time? That last one, perhaps, the biggest mystery of them all. Today, we're gonna be looking at all the Easter eggs, secrets, and hidden lore from the movie, then comparing those to other parts of the franchise, both the books and the games, in order to predict where the story of the FNAF 2 movie is gonna go years before they actually make it. So to begin, we should point out that we already do have some vague idea where the sequel's gonna head. In an interview with Variety, FNAF director Emma Tammy explained that the first movie was tied to the first game, so a second film would likely tie into a second game. Which, duh, kinda goes without saying, but also should probably make our lives easy, right? Yeah, not quite. As we mentioned in our first prediction theory, the strategy for the movieverse seems to be taking iconic bits and pieces from across the entire franchise, games, books, fan theories, even hoaxes, and distilling it all down into the most recognizable version of FNAF there is. That's how we got Mike Schmidt from FNAF 1, hanging out with Vanessa from Security Breach, fighting Springtrap from FNAF 3, and saving Abby from getting stuck into a Springlock version of Ella from the Silver Eyes novel, with an ending that was ripped straight out of the fourth closet. It is literally FNAF the smoothie. Everything dumped into a blender, chopped up, and then poured back out onto the big screen. So yeah, while it did follow the same broad strokes as the first game, five nights in the FNAF 1 pizzeria with ghost kids in suits, it is definitely not the same story. It's also important to note the changes to the story that have been added in. One example has to be the time that these movies take place. It's widely accepted that the FNAF 1 video game takes place somewhere around 1993, and yet in this scene from the movie, we see a date on a security camera that reads April 6th, 2000, about seven years later. Another big example? Though we've long theorized that the story of the original FNAF games takes place in Utah, that is not the case in the film. In the film, during the scene where Aunt Jane is confronting Mike at Abby's school, her lawyer hands Mike some family court paperwork. If you pause and read the fine print on the documents, you'll find the URL mncourts.gov, which is the official website for the Minnesota judicial system. Additionally, we can see a phone number with the area code 651, which is connected to the St. Paul area and eastern suburbs of Minnesota. And get this, I kid you not, there's a small town in this area code named Afton. You cannot make that up. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if Scott moved the entire movie to Minnesota just for that change alone. Lastly, there's also this decal on Vanessa's police cruiser, GFPD. PD stands for police department. That part's pretty darn obvious, but then what about the GF? Well, honestly, that could stand for any city or township with those same initials, from Grand Forks to Glen Falls to Great Falls, but included in that list is Granite Falls, just two hours west of St. Paul, whose cop cars, at least according to the website, follow the 
the exact same black and white color pattern that we see in the movie. Speaking of clues from the cars that are seen throughout the movie, we can also reasonably assume that Mike's brother Garrett was kidnapped in the early 80s, based on this shot from Mike's dream sequence. By taking the rear end of William Afton's car here and reverse image searching for it, we're able to identify this as a Ford Fairmont Futura. Specifically, the model is coming from between 1980 and 1983. You can immediately see the connections here between the unique vertical taillight design and the boxy body shape. But why then does that matter? Well, Mike's brother Garrett is likely the first child that Afton abducted and killed. In Mike's dream flashbacks, we very clearly see Garrett holding a toy airplane as he's being taken away in the back of Afton's car. And where do we see that airplane again? When Vanessa reveals Afton to be her father. She's holding the same airplane. That right there, that is cold. Gifting toys from your victims to your daughter. But not only is it gross, it's also helpful because it lets us put together a rough timeline. You see, Afton and Vanessa are clearly in a still operational pizzeria in this photograph, which means it had to have been taken before the other kids went missing, causing Freddy's to shut down. In other words, Garrett was the first of Afton's victims that we currently know of. And that right there, that's important, because in the games, Afton's first victim, and the one most closely associated with his car, goes on to possess the puppet, a marionette-esque character that serves as a protector and guide to all the other spirit children. It's the first victim that gives gifts and gives life to the other animatronics after their murders. We see this possession happening in FNAF 6's security puppet minigame. Notice the tire tracks out there in the rain. We see the exact same event from a different angle in FNAF 2. Notice that cool purple car. From there, the rest of FNAF 2's hidden minigames then show us the puppet trying to protect the other dead children from Afton. And when it can't, the puppet decides to bring them to life in the form of animatronics. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The robotic voice here is spelling out save them. Does it sound familiar? It should. That same robotic voice appears at the very end of the movie's credits. D-O-M-E-F-I-N-E-M. Once the whole thing wraps, the voice has spelled out, Come find me, in the exact same way that the puppet communicated to the player in the FNAF 2 minigames. And who needs to be found in the movie? Garrett. See, the fact that they never resolved what exactly happened to Garrett was a big thing that stuck out to me when I was watching this thing. After all, it was Mike's entire motivation, and his only clear outright connection to both Afton and Vanessa. His fate is definitely gonna come up again in the sequel, and all the signs are pointing to the puppet from the FNAF 2 video game. What's more, did you notice the music that was playing during that section? It's a music box. Another nod to the puppet, who in the games is kept calm by constantly winding a music box. In short, Garrett is possessing the puppet in this world, and here he is literally trying to tell Mike and the audience to come find him in the sequel. But stop for a minute and consider the method of Afton's crime here. It is different from all the rest. He's out in nature. He kidnaps Garrett and presumably leaves him alive longer than his normal victims. He keeps the kid's toy and then gives it to his daughter. They're even in a completely different state. Unlike the rest of Afton's crimes, where he just lures kids to the back of the pizzeria and kills them, here, things feel premeditated. They feel personal. And that would align with both the games and the books, where Afton's first murder isn't just a random killing, it's targeted against one person, his business partner and the original builder of the animatronics, Henry. Small souls trapped in prisons of my making now set to new purpose, a wound first inflicted on me. 
but then one that I let bleed out to cause all of this. In fact, in the novel trilogy, Afton does the exact same thing that he does in the movie. He kidnaps Henry's daughter, Charlie, before ultimately killing her. Basically, all signs point to Garrett not just being a random victim, but rather to him being the son of Afton's partner and rival, Henry, the man who helped Afton build all of the animatronics. See, as I was piecing together the details from the movie, I started to notice something. The Afton and Schmidt families from the movie seem awfully close to the family structures from the games, except in reverse. You see, in the game series, we know that Afton has himself three children, Michael, Crying Child, and Elizabeth. The oldest son, Michael, plays a prank as a kid, which gets his younger brother killed in the iconic Bite of 1983. From there on, Mike becomes obsessed with atoning for his mistake, eventually becoming a security guard and releasing the spirit of his brother into the afterlife. Then, there's Elizabeth, who eventually gets trapped and dies inside a baby, a suit that is increasingly looking to be a springlock animatronic. Now, let's check out the Schmidt family over in the movie. You have, again, a family of three, two boys and a girl. Mike, the older brother, is a security guard who's obsessed with atoning for the time that he got his younger brother, Garrett, kidnapped and killed. Then there's Abby, who's nearly trapped and killed inside the Ella suit, a springlock animatronic. They literally match one for one. Meanwhile, Afton in the movie seems to have himself only one daughter, Vanessa, just like Henry had himself one daughter, Charlie, in the games. So, if they've switched dynamics, that could make Mike's dad here the representative of Henry Emily from the games. Her mom died uh, a little while back, and dad, he couldn't handle it so. They leave Mike's dad's fate vague. To me, looks like it was deliberately done in case they ever wanted to bring Mike's dad back into the story in a role similar to Henry's. But perhaps most interesting of all, if you look in the background of the employee training video, you can see a man who looks very similar to Mike's dad working on the animatronics, just like Henry would have done in the game's canon. This is also, as far as I can tell, an uncredited performance, but one look at Mike's dad, this guy from the training video, and the way that Henry's portrayed in places like the character encyclopedia, it shows a visual design connection between the three of them. But not only would this connection fit with the established game lore, it would also explain why William Afton recognizes Mike. Early in the movie, we see Afton have a moment of recognition when he reads Mike's last name. Mr. Michael Sh But according to US Census data, there's around 166,000 people with the last name Schmidt here in the US. So either this is just a case of pure movie coincidence, or William recognizes not only the last name Schmidt, but Mike Schmidt specifically, in the general age range that his partner's son would be. That's why he's so sure that this is someone from his past. More evidence for this? The fact that William knows that Mike has a brother without it ever being addressed. This is perfect. First I killed your brother, now I killed you. Sure, we can assume the spirit children told him. The little ones tell me you have a sister. Or maybe Vanessa. But that's a bit less satisfying than him just knowing and taking out his vendetta against every member of the Schmidt family. And for those of you saying that Henry's last name is Emily, it might be, but that's never actually been officially confirmed. We've always thought it was a bit bizarre to have as a last name, and let's be honest, it could just as easily be Charlie's middle name, Charlotte Emily Schmidt. But last, let's talk about William. You'll notice that I just pulled the line that indicates that the spirits talk to William throughout this movie, which is a very important detail. In fact, if you notice, they really gave Afton a lot of explicit control over what the spirits are doing here. See, while he seems to understand what was happening in the games, it never seemed like he could outright control the animatronics. In the books, it's a little bit different. He eventually is able to control the animatronics, but not until the last novel of the trilogy. Here, though, he seems to understand all of it from the get-go. They tell him about Abby. He understands the importance of the pictures on the wall. What have you done? And as the Springlocks and his suit are going off and he's dying, what does he do? He basically looks directly in the camera, says his catchphrase, I always come back, and puts on the Springtrap helmet. Why? What sense would that make? Well, it's a pretty clear indication that this Afton explicitly knows how possession works, and it involves being completely put inside of the suit like this. Putting on that helmet is basically Afton accepting his fate, knowing that he'll be back, able to possess the suit and survive. So, right 
right here we have ourselves a smarter Afton who is years further in his understanding of the spiritual world than either the Afton in the games or the books. Which leads me to this. An animatronic buried in the parts and service room of the pizzeria. One that you can't see in the movie, but you can see in the behind the scenes footage from Daco during his tour of the movie set. An animatronic with rounded human skull, silver eyes, and human teeth. While this could just be background set dressing, I don't think that's the case. If this is truly an Afton who understands the power of agony in granting eternal life, if this is an Afton who has gone so far as to build a Freddy torture chair for extracting remnant from his victims, I'm thinking his experiments with building passable robotic humans has already begun. This isn't just me playing the Robot Gregory game again, it is the only explanation for the parts and services room to have an animatronic with human teeth and realistic human head proportions and eyes, and above it hanging from the top of the shop, a robotic hand with five fully articulating fingers and human proportions. No other animatronic in this series fits this sort of description. Does this mean he's already built a humanoid, or is this just an early phase of his experiments? It's unclear, but it does give a bit more credit to Vanessa's bloodless stab wound at the end of the movie being more than just an excuse to get itself a PG-13 rating. My real guess, though, is that there's a robot Garrett walking around, and that he'll be the reveal at the end of the movie, just like Charlie the Puppet is revealed to be a robot at the end of the fourth closet. A world-shattering revelation for Mike as he comes to terms with the nature of his brother and his father's weird creations, before the final movie where he's tasked with having to burn it all down. Honestly, the pieces are in place for us. Or not. All the next movie has to do is drop a Markiplier cameo and then show me a clip of Mangle and I'm in. But hey, it's all just a theory. A film theory. And cut.